It's a really, um, it's a really precious thing to have hope, isn't it? Um, it's, it's, it's hope that keeps humanity going, isn't it? It's the loss of hope that causes us to give up, often causes us to perish. Uh, to live without hope is to cease to live. That was how uh, Dostoevsky put it. And I think that's right, isn't it? When, when we, um, it's, why, it's why we're praying, isn't it? It's why we're praying for the people of Sudan at the moment, that they wouldn't lose hope. It's because it, it would be so easy for that to happen, but it would be so deadly for that to happen as well. I think it was in 2018, was it towards the end of 2018, when thousands of Sudanese people engaged in a protest, a kind of uh, a very dangerous, death-defying protest on the streets of Khartoum. They, they were protesting, of course, if you remember it, about the decades of crisis and massacre and famine that had just ravaged their country under the, the dictatorship of, uh, of al-Bashir. Um, and, and they managed to achieve what I think nobody thought they would be able to, and they, they drove the dictator out, really, out of office after 30 years of, of rule. It, it seemed as though you know, there might just be a shot at democracy and, and peace. But, of course, since then, hopes have been repeatedly destroyed, haven't they, by, by the country's very powerful uh, military. And, and it may now be gone for good, or at least for a, for a generation you know, with this latest war. And we fear for them, don't we? Because we see that their hope for a peaceful, stable country, we, we see it kind of ebbing away, don't we, for now at least. And, and we fear for them because we know that it's hope that keeps humanity going. Which makes it strange, don't you think, that for most of us as Christians... We don't actually consider our future hope very much, or very often. It's a bit odd, don't you think? Because as Christians, we, of course, we've got the best hope of all. I mean, for most people in the world, hope revolves around uncertainty, doesn't it? Uh, we, we hope for a better future. We, we, uh, we hope for a better job. We hope for the right exam results. We, we hope for better finances. We hope for a better you know, university choice or something, better health, a better house, or whatever it might be. But there's no certainty to those hopes, is there? At, at best, it's kind of, you know, it's some wishful thinking. We wish for something better. But for the Christian, hope is something much more concrete isn't it? Christian hope is certain because it's hope that's based on the promises and the character of God. And, and that hope, of course, is a glorious, eternal future with God in, in his perfect place. If you've been with us as we've, uh, as we've gone through Revelation, you, you'll have seen it's a, it's a letter that's kind of driven by hope. Isn't it? First chapter, if you remember that far back, it kind of introduces us to the, the three key themes of the book, doesn't it? God's sovereignty, Jesus' victory, the church's security. Those have been the big themes, haven't they? And we've seen again and again as we've gone through the, the book that, that the victory is not so much you know, in the future, Armageddon in the future. The victory is actually Calvary in the past. Christ is Lord. He reigns. 
But in the meantime, Revelation has revealed to us the the kind of the harsh reality of living in these these last days, these days between Christ's resurrection and his return. Uh, That although we're secure, spiritually speaking, yet we face persecution, we face suffering because we live in a world that is fallen and, and under God's judgment. You know, the seals and the trumpets and the bowls have, have been telling us that, haven't they? But, but also because we face an enemy, Satan, and, and his allies, the, the beast, the false prophet, the prostitute, Babylon. But the lamb has conquered. Chapter 20 showed us, didn't it? The end of all evil. You know, all of God's enemies. As Jesus brings to reality the victory that was achieved on the cross. And so here, in these chapters, we see the hope realized. We we see the the fantastic picture of what awaits us as God's people. Now that evil and and enemies are are destroyed. But as we look at these chapters, I want to suggest that this glorious vision of the future is not the climax of the book. Okay, it's not where we're meant to end. Because when John has finished describing heaven for us, he's not at the end of his book, is he? You see, John could have finished like chapter 22, verse 7, couldn't he? He could have finished with, with, behold, I am coming soon. That would have been a nice sort of happy ever after ending, if you like, to to the book, wouldn't it? Maybe we we would have finished the book like that. But John doesn't, but rather he spends the final verses of the book actually giving us some warnings. So, so, so why does he do that? Well, the reason is that although chapter 21 and the, the first part of chapter 22 are really the climax of the whole Bible, yet John wants us to see, before he signs off, that we're not there yet. Right? We're still in the world. Right? The old order of things has not passed away yet. Sin is still a reality. The enemies of God are still around. And so the reason we're given chapter 21 and and this glorious picture of the future is to show us why it's worth pressing on now. Why it's worth giving your life for the gospel. Why it's worth being persecuted. Why it's worth resisting sin for the whole of your life. It's because the best is yet to come. We're not there yet. And friends, if you and I fail to grasp that, if we fail to see that we're meant to live now in the light of that future hope, then I think we'll fall and stumble and may not make it to the end. So as we look at this this amazing chapter with all of its hope, we need to be applying it to the here and now. Because the future hope has a present application. So let me try and pick up four themes. I've got four themes for us to to see across these two chapters. And and the first thing I'd love us to see is that our future hope is a solid hope. Hope, And what I mean by a solid hope is that heaven is a solid, if you like, earthly reality. Okay, so so notice what John says in verse 1, because he's talking about a new creation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So John is looking forward here to a time when God promises to make everything new. He sees a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, he sees a whole new universe, a whole new cosmos, a new place for God's people to live in. 
And actually, the word that John uses there for new, it, it doesn't mean that it's like a replacement for the old one. That's, that's not the idea. But rather, the idea is a renewing of it, a, a renovating of it, if you like. In other words, it's, it, it, it's not describing a different universe that we go to, a different heaven, a different earth that bears no relation to this one. But actually, if you like, a reborn one. You know, just like our new resurrection bodies are made new without us losing our identity. We'll, we'll still be recognizable. So also with the new heaven and the new earth. But then notice something amazing. Look in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And this holy city, this new Jerusalem, we'll see this a bit later on, is symbolic language for talking about God's people. And notice that this city comes down from heaven to earth. In other words, like the old Belinda Carlisle, I used this illustration in the 915, and anybody under about 30 said, Belinda who? And then, then all the people of my age said, oh yeah, Belinda Carlisle, yeah. Do you remember the Belinda Carlisle song? Heaven really is a place on earth here. God is going to make everything new, and heaven will not be kind of up in the sky, sitting on a cloud, you know, strumming a harp or something, but a physical and tangible thing on a renewed and remade earth. In fact, if you look closely at all the other passages in the New Testament that talk about the future hope, you see the same thing is emphasized. Uh, like I mentioned just now, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the need for new physical resurrection bodies for the new world that we will inhabit. Um, or it's why Jesus rose physically from the dead to show that the resurrection hope for believers as well is a, is a physical one. Do you see? The future hope is a solid hope. It's a real place that God will make for his people. And it's important that we grasp the fact that there is continuity, you know, between this world and the new world. Different passages explain that fact in different ways. But, but it, what's clear is that the new world will be similar to this world. But, but of course, infinitely better, perfect, in fact, because there will be no sin. So just, just think about that for a minute. You know, think, think about the many amazing things that God has made in, in this world. Think about uh, beautiful sunsets or think about amazing mountain landscapes or think about an incredible variety of animal species and, and so on. And then think about how much better all of that will be when this world is remade as a perfect world. Won't that be incredible? A perfect new world. If you're a fan of the, the Narnia books, you might remember the author, C.S. Lewis. He talks about, he describes the future hope um, in, in the book, The Last Battle. And, and there's a scene there in which Mr. Tumnus is showing Lucy around the new Narnia, you know, the, the representing heaven, of course. And, and, and we read this. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and seas and mountains but they were not strange to her. She knew them all. I see, she said. This is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below. In other words, friends, this is, this, this is shadow lands, as, as uh, Lewis termed it. It's, it's a good place, but it's tainted by sin. And it's simply a shadow. It's simply a, a, a pale reflection 
of, of the, the reality that is to come when God will make all things new. And friends, that, that new creation, that will be more real, more beautiful, more physical and tangible, more amazing than anything we could ever hope. And, and maybe you were worried as an islander, maybe you were worried by the phrase, no more sea. It's like, what? What? No more sea? I think that's to be understood symbolically, not literally. Uh, we've seen already, haven't we, in Revelation, the sea represented evil and, and chaos uh, in the ancient world. So the fact that the sea is no more is John's way of telling us that, that evil and Satan and sin and suffering will be gone forever. But I think swimming and surfing will still be options. Um, <laughs> friends, the, the, point, the point here is, is this, that the, the Christian hope, right, it's not some kind of ethereal, wishy-washy, pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die kind of hope. It's a, it's a real, physical, tangible, solid hope. And, and, and I think it's vital that we see that, that, that we see it as the Bible sees it. Because then we realize that it's, it's a solid hope worth living for and worth dying for. There's, a, there's another bit, though, to this, this solid hope that John tells us about. And, and that is that, that in order for us to inhabit this new place, God will make us new too. So have a look at verse 4. If, if we're Christians, trusting in the death and the resurrection of Christ... He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you see? Not only will we inhabit a perfect new place, but we will be made new ourselves. Now, as we'll see in a minute, that, that means no more sin. But it also means here, look, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, because the former things, the old order of things, will have passed away. And, and you know, as, as we know all too well, this, this world <laughs> means pain, doesn't it? It means suffering, it means tears, it means grief. But that is part of the old order of, of sin and death. But in the new world, such pain will not even exist let me ask you, um, how many tears have you shed in the last month? You know, maybe they were tears of grief or tears of worry over a loved one. Maybe they were tears of, of pain over a, a physical ailment or a, a mental ailment. Maybe they were tears of anguish over your financial situation. Maybe they were tears of, of frustration over a, a relationship struggle. Friend, there will be no tears in heaven. God will, will personally wipe them away. And we'll experience only absolute joy, absolute bliss, absolute contentment as we see God face to face. So what does all that mean for us in the present? You know, as we press on now in the light of that future hope. Well, some of you will uh, remember a chap called David Watson. He was a pastor in the 60s and the 70s. He died of, he died of cancer in, uh, in 1984. And just before he died, he, he wrote this. 
He wrote, a doctor complained recently, our patients expect us to make them immortal. Many cling tenaciously to this life because they fear there's nothing more to come. Today's preoccupation with youth and youthfulness demonstrates the same deep-seated anxiety about the future, especially the last enemy death of which cancer seems the most frightening symbol. One day we stand to lose everything of this world and no one knows when that day will come. Once we have lost our lives to God, however, we belong eternally to him and in Christ we have all that is ultimately important. If we spend our whole time worrying about ourselves, we have missed the point of our existence. God offers no promise to shield us from the evil of this fallen world. There's no immunity guaranteed from sickness or pain or sorrow and death. But what he does pledge is his never-failing presence for those of us who have found him in Christ. Nothing can destroy that. Always he is with us. And in the long run, that's all we need to know. You see, friends, this future hope doesn't take away our present pain. But it enables us to see what we're heading for. And that that is something infinitely better. It shows us that our pain, however real now, is not forever. And that God's presence with us begins now when we turn to him and he won't leave us or forsake us. And friends, I reckon that ought to be a huge encouragement to us, don't you think? As we struggle on in in this life, because we know we're heading for a rock-solid, earthly and eternal reality. And in the meantime, God is with us and he won't let us go. So friends, we really need to get this, I think, that our future hope is a solid hope. It's a physical, tangible hope. And both the creation and us will be perfectly made new. Second thing I'd love us to see is that our future hope is an intimate hope. And again, I think there are a couple of aspects to the, to the intimacy, if you like, of this hope. You can see those two aspects in the two images that God uses to describe the people of God. One image is that of a bride And the other is that of a city. Now, um, I think a big misunderstanding of this chapter um, is to think that it's describing, although these verses from from verse 9, that that they're describing um, what heaven will be like. In other words, you know, it will be a place that's paved with gold streets or whatever. Uh, Because actually both the bride and the city here are descriptions of us as God's people. Okay, so John's not so much describing where we're going to live in those verses, but what kind of people we're going to be and and, and what we'll experience. In other words, it's a symbolic picture of people rather than places. These These are descriptions of you, but you perfectly transformed in God's new creation. You see? And I think the picture that John presents is one of intimacy first in in the symbol of the bride that that intimacy is is seen in our relationship with God because he's who these chapters are really all about he's the focus uh, of the future hope have a look at verse two again 
I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's that's got to be one of the best bits of scripture in the Bible, isn't it? (laughs) Kind of sums up everything that we've we've been heading for since the the fall in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Because, of course, humanity was was specifically designed for a relationship with God in in a way that nothing else in the universe is, not, not, not even the angels. And in order to restore that relationship that we ruined because of sin... God himself comes to earth in in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross. And because of that, in the new world that God will make, God can live with his people again. Now the dwelling place of God is with man. Verse 3. You see, I will live with them again, he says. So, So the cross of Christ has paved the way for this glorious moment when we see God face to face. Uh, And then if you glance on, look to to chapter 22 and verses 3 and 4. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Do you see? The curse of sin will have gone, and so we will See God and serve him. And to help us grasp the the wonder of that relationship, John uses the picture of a beautiful bride waiting for her husband. So guys, if you're married, did you know, despite what she tells you, did you know, according to this illustration here, the best part of your wedding day for her was seeing you at the end of the aisle kind of waiting for her as she came into church. Who knew? (laughs) That's the picture here, isn't it, of the expectancy of a bride meeting her husband. And it's a little picture of the church longing to meet its husband, its God and King, face to face. In fact, actually, so much of the The imagery in chapter 21 is is taken up with helping us to grasp the wonder of that relationship. So, for example, look, the measurements of the city uh, in in verses 15 to 17, they make a a perfect cube. And and the only other place in the Bible where a perfect cube is is talked about is the Holy of Holies. You know, the the, the most sacred part of the temple in in the Old Testament where God's presence was, was said to be. You see, it's a way of saying that the whole of this new creation is the holy of holies. It's where God is. Only this time we can be with him there as well, face to face. Um, If we need more help to grasp it, look what he says in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, we don't need a temple in heaven, because God is the temple, and he's there with his people. If I were to to ask you, what's the thing that you're looking forward to the most about heaven? 
What do you think is the best thing that, uh, of our future hope that, that God has got in store with us? What, what do you think you'd say? You know, pe- people say to me quite often, oh, it'll be being reunited with, with loved ones. Or maybe you think it'll be the beauty of, of the, the new creation around you or being, uh, 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 having no more suffering or no more tears. Well, I think this passage would say to us that the, the best thing about heaven is that God will be there. Because right? that's the, that's the be-all and end-all of heaven, isn't it? It's that we're there with him. That's why it'll be so good. That's why you won't be able to contain your joy. That's why you've got no need to worry about what happens to you after death if you're trusting in Christ. That's why you can look forward to it. That's what makes all the pain and suffering of this world worth it. That's why we should be pouring our energies and focus and priorities and resources into our relationship with God now. Because we're preparing to meet our husband. And one day we'll be with him. And we'll spend eternity with him. So there's the, there's the bride symbol through which John talks about the, the intimacy of our relationship with God. But you see the other symbol he uses there is that of a city. And, and I think through that, through that metaphor he speaks about the intimacy of our relationship with, with one another. Uh, Have a look at chapter 21 and verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So John thinks he's going to see a bride. Come, I will show you the bride. But he's actually shown a city. He showed me the holy city. And that's because the bride is the city. You see, and both of those metaphors refer not not to a place, but to a people. This is a description of you and me. If, If we're Christians, God's people are the city. Now, maybe for us, you know, we're we're kind of we're Isla Whiters, aren't we? When we think about a city, maybe we think that well, that's describing something a bit grim. Right? You know, that's the sprawl of a, a London or a New York or somewhere, you know, which actually, like any, uh, any gathering of people in this world, is going to be full of pain and sadness and loss and, and rebellion. Uh, of course, maybe you've got a negative image of a city. But of course, in the new world that God is going to make for us, there'll be no sin, there'll be no evil, there'll be no tears. So what John is showing us here is, is that our future hope, heaven, if you like, is, is an intimate community of people. Right? It's a city in the best sense of that word, a community of God's people living perfectly together. Now, of course, already in Revelation, John has, John has shown us some glimpses, hasn't he, of God's people together in, in perfect harmony, praising the living God, you know, like, like chapter 4 or, or, or chapter 7 and so on. Those are pictures of what the new creation will be like. In other words, heaven is a, is a community of sinless people who are totally focused on their God. And, and friends, that's why the church community now is so important. Okay, it's why our, our weekly gatherings of, of the church are so important. Because there's a sense in which those times move us closer to the reality of heaven than we might imagine. Because our relationships with one another now as Christians are ones that we will have for eternity. 
In other words, yes, we, we need each other to, to keep us going in the Christian life. That's, that's one essential uh, reason why we must prioritize meeting together. But another reason is that as God's people, we'll be spending eternity together. Now, you might be tempted to have a look around the church and think, well, that doesn't sound very heavenly to me. <laughs> but remember that everyone will be perfect then, even you. They'll be completely loving and selfless and, and just, just like Jesus. And friends, if that is what we're heading for, then we need to start reflecting that future hope in the way that we deal with one another now as God's people in this world. Because our, our relationship with God is expressed in our relationship with one another. And our future hope is an intimate hope. But a third thing uh, I think we can see in these chapters is that our future hope is a secure hope. Because all this talk of heaven, you know, our future hope, it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? But what if it might not happen? You know, what, what if another fall comes along? What if it all goes wrong again, just like it did back in the, in the Garden of Eden? Well, friends, there is no chance of that. Okay, I mean, we've seen right through the book, haven't we? The security of God's people is, is never in doubt. And, and it's highlighted again here in the description of the city. So look at chapter 21, verse 12. Notice that the city has a, a, a high wall and it's got 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. Uh, and then notice in verse 14 that the foundations of the city are inscribed with the names of the apostles of the Lamb of Christ, in other words. So the symbolism here is, is that the people of God rest on the teaching of the apostles. They're, they're built on the solid foundation of their teaching. And, and not only that, but the dimensions of the city and its walls are, are astonishing. Verse 16, uh, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And again, that's not a literal measurement, of course, because it's not a literal city. It's symbolic of God's people. But rather, the, the dimensions are here to give us a picture of God's people as utterly impregnable. Right? The city here is, is 1,400 miles square. That, that's what 12,000 stadia is. Its walls are about 200 feet thick. In other words, the, the image is that this is a city that cannot be attacked. God's people are beyond destroying. And notice that above the city, as it were, is, is God's city, which is why in verse 11 it, it shines with the glory of God. And why you get this big long description of it covered in, in precious stones. It's, it's a picture of, of the, the total security of God's people. Maybe we might worry that there could be another fall. You know, that sin could kind of re-enter, as it were, and threaten the security of God's people. Well, no. Not, not least because chapter 20 has already shown us the utter destruction of sin, but also because verse 27 here in, in, in chapter 21 shows us that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are in this city. In other words, friends, heaven is for Christians only. Right? For those who have trusted Jesus. 
That's another reason, isn't it? Why, if you're not a Christian yet, I'd, I'd urge you to investigate seriously the claims of Christ for yourself. Trust him as soon as you can. Because it's the only way, actually, that either you or I are going to be in heaven. We're not going to make it by being good enough or moral enough or because my grandma was a Christian or because you were christened or because you go to church sometimes or whatever. It's only by trusting in the cross of Christ that any of us will be in heaven. Let me quickly show you another reason why our future hope is, is a secure hope. That's in verse 5. Have a look in verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, friends, ultimately, the, the reason our future hope is secure is because God says it is. Because when God says that something will happen, it, it will happen because his word is, is true. Our future hope is a solid hope. It's an intimate hope. It's a secure hope. Which brings us uh, to the last part of, of chapter 22, really, the, the final thing that I'd love us to, to briefly see here, which is that our future hope is a practical hope. And it's practical because although this future hope is glorious, we're not there yet. You know, we've discovered in the book, haven't we, we're living now in the last days. You know, the period between Christ's resurrection and his return. We're not in heaven yet. So, so how are we to act? Because the message of these final verses is that future hope inspires present action. In other words, we live now in the light of what's coming. Because, as we saw at the beginning, without hope, there's very little reason to live now. But look at these verses and notice how it is the future hope that inspires present action. For example, in verse 11, we, we need to stay pure. right? We must continue to do what is right. We must keep battling sin. Why? Because our citizenship is in heaven, friends. And we prove our, our status as, as citizens by our actions. So, so while, verse 11, the evildoer may still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, yet the righteous must still do right, and the holy still be holy. Do you see, Christians must be those who prove their status as, as citizens by their actions, by being who we are. Or, or, or verse 18, we're told to stay faithful. We're, we're not to add anything or take away anything from this prophecy, from, from the words of, of this book. And, and the image, of course, there is sticking to what's been revealed, isn't it? In other words, if we want to make it to our future hope, if we want to see our future hope realized, well, we must remain faithful to God's words. We must stand firm in, in the glorious uh, revealed truth of, of his word. And, and despite the rampant false teaching and the persecution of the evil one that's been described in this book, no matter the cultural pressure to adapt it, to, to add it or, or take away from it, we need to stand firm in it and stay faithful to it. So stay pure, verse 11, stay faithful, verse 18, and stay hopeful, verse 20, because the refrain that cuts through all of these verses, actually three times, is come. Lord Jesus. 
And, and notice what verse 20 says. He who testifies to these things says, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. In other words, yes, the, the Lord will return. That's his promise. It's the only promise he's still got left to keep. He's kept all the others. So there's no doubt that he's going to keep this one as well. Friends, as we come to a close of this, this quite remarkable book, can I ask you what your response to it will be? Will it be to press on, trusting yourself wholly to the lamb who was slain? Or will it be to continue rejecting the lamb and, and going the way of the, well, the dragon and the beasts and Satan himself? Because Revelation is, is clear, isn't it? Like, like the booklet in the cafe there tells us, there are only two ways to live. And one way leads to glory and the other way to destruction. And one day everything will be revealed and made clear. And that's because God is clearly in charge and Jesus has the final victory and Satan is a defeated and doomed enemy. And whilst life is often hard and we find ourselves suffering in all sorts of ways, yet the Christian is secure. So friends, take heart. Keep going. Keep trusting. Keep remembering that future hope. And, and remember too, as John expresses it in his final words there in verse 21, that the key to doing those things does not lie with us but with God and his grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. That's the key, isn't it? We live for Christ now in the light of our coming future hope, not in our strength, but in the grace that he provides. We'll sing it in a minute. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for this, uh, this staggering book that you've, uh, you've given us, uh, for this glorious picture of our future hope, a hope that is solid and intimate and secure and practical for our life now as we await that day and long for that day. So, Father, please would you give us grace, we pray, to live now in the light of our coming future and in the grace that you provide. And we pray it in Jesus' name.